We're going to be in Genesis 40 and 41. Sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. And he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them. They continued for some time in custody. And one night, they both dreamed, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in prison, each his own dream and each dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked the Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in the master's house, why are your faces downcast today? They said to him, we have had dreams and there is no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. Verse 12. Then Joseph said to him, this is its interpretation. The three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office. And you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer. Only remember me when it is well with you. And please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh. And so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of Hebrews. And here I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. Verse 20. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgotten him. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile, and behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them, and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows. And Pharaoh awoke, and he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the cast east winds. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump, full ears. And Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, we dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream with his own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And has, as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office, and the baker was hanged. Verse 28. It is as I told Pharaoh. God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt. But after them, there will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land, and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow it, for it will be very severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream meant that the thing is fixed by God, and God will bring it about shortly. Now therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years. And let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store, it under, uh, store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve of the land under the, against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt so that the land may not perish through the famine. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom the spirit of God? 
And Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. Verse 46. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out to the pre from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. During the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly, and he gathered up all the foods of these seven years, which occurred in the land of Egypt, and put the food in the cities. He put in every city the food from the fields around it. And Joseph stored up grain in great abundance, like the sand of the sea, until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Aseneth, the daughter of Potiphera, priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim, for God made me fr fruitful in the land of my affliction. The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come, as Joseph had said. There was famine in all the lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph. What he says to you, do. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you that we can gather today to worship you and hear your message that you have for us through Josue. Um, I see so much hope in this story. I see your perfect timing, your provision, your faithfulness. I see your plan, which almost always takes a different path than what we would think. I'm so grateful your thoughts are higher than ours. Thank you for reminding us of that. I pray that um, for Josue that he will speak your words, Lord. I pray each of us would leave here having been drawn closer to you. We love you, Lord. Uh, please give us eyes to see, ears to hear, minds to understand, and hearts to believe. Amen. Amen. Well, fam, I'm uh, very excited to be preaching out of this text today, a little different than last time, but uh, nonetheless, God's word, I believe he's got a very timely message for all of us this morning as we read uh, through the continuation of what uh, we started a few weeks ago in uh, Joseph's novella. So we will continue in that today. And if I asked you, what are you planning for these days? What are you trying to grow in these days? What are you trying to become these days? Um, I can guarantee some of our lists would look like things, uh, would look like things, projects, like projects we have at the house, things we want to uh, make prettier, a different cabinet color, or some shiplap, or whatever it is we want to put in the house. If you're really spiritual, maybe you're uh, re-engaging the, um, the reading plan you started in January that kind of didn't go quite as planned. Um, and as you're thinking about the things that you want to do and the things you want to become, I can guarantee this. I don't know that anyone, I've yet to meet anyone, and actually I'll ask this question. So by show of hands, who at the top of their list has patience? I really want to become patient. Show of hands. Like, you actually have this as a goal for your life. Okay, man, praise God. Like, I want to be around you guys. Uh, normally, this is something that happens to us, not something that we're actually actively seeking to do. And yet, I would say to us today, and the Word would say to us today, is that uh, being patient is not an optional thing for the believer. In fact, it's one of the part of the fruit of the Spirit that comes and is birthed out of us when we are indwelt with God, that we would become patient. And so today we're going to look at Joseph's life, we're going to look at the continuation of this story, and we're going to learn from Joseph what it looks like to become patient, what it looks like that for God to grow patience in us. So I want you to, with conviction, look at your neighbor and say, God is making me patient. Okay, but I want you to believe it. Let's try it one more time. With conviction, God is making me patient. Look at your neighbor and say that. Uh, yes. And how fitting that the day God is making us patient, we have 80 verses to cover together. 
God is, God is perfect in his timing with that. But let's get started. So I'm going to take you back to probably something you haven't thought about in a long time, your SAT prep class. Now, you guys remember something called math word problems. It went something like this. Billy had $10 and went to the store. He bought a salad and came home with seven. How much will he give to church planting? That's a joke. Man. It's a joke. It's a joke. But what we will do is take the skills that we learned in high school in our SAT prep class, and we're going to discover how long was Joseph in prison. So I want you to go with me to chapter 41, verse 46. Okay, we're going to work in reverse order. We're going to try to figure out how long has Joseph been in this season. Verse 46 of chapter 41 says, Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So he's 30 years old, all right? Let's work in reverse. Now let's go to chapter, uh, sorry, verse 1 of chapter 41. He says, after two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. Okay, two whole years, and what we know from what we read today is that this two years between him starting his service and him uh, interpreting the cupbearer's dreams, that puts him at 28 years old, right? So we have two years of imprisonment after he's... um, interpreted the dreams of the cupbearer and the baker, so he, this puts him at 28. We flip the page back to, verse four, to chapter 40, verse 1. It says, some time after this. And we know that this is the event of last week when Joseph escaped Potiphar's uh, seductive wife and, and did the right thing and ran away, and he's thrown in prison. And we'll go back one more page to chapter 37, verse 2. And it says, these are the generations of Jacob, Joseph being 17 years old. All right, so this is the timeline. This is where our math skills finally pay off, right, in reading the Bible, is he's 30 years old when he starts to work for the Pharaoh. Two years have passed since he's interpreted the dreams of the baker and the cupbearer. And between being 28 and being 17, 17 is when he is sent uh, to be a slave because his brothers sell him into slavery. So what we can see here is that last week to this week, there's about a 10-year period, a decade, that Joseph has either been a slave or or he's been in prison. And last week we heard that the Lord was with him, and the key verse for him was chapter 39, verse 21, but the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor. And I have to ask myself, the blessed and highly favored life of Joseph is this, 10 years a decade of imprisonment and of slavery, and yet Joseph is holding steadfast because the Lord is with him. And so the first lesson we can learn from Joseph as we think about be- people that are becoming patient is this, starting, that becoming patient starts with waiting on the Lord. Becoming patient starts with waiting on the Lord. Joseph, the man of God, the man that had a dream when he was 17 and very immaturely ran and told his brothers about this dream that he's going to be over them and over all the land, is sold into slavery. And for the better part of a decade, he is now in prison and he's a slave and he is still steadfast because the Lord is with him. And we are seeing that for him, he is waiting on this dream that God gave him when he was 17. He's still waiting for that to be fulfilled. And how do we know that, that he is waiting on the Lord? We see him not waver in his character. We see him not waver in the person that he, God had created him to be. And so we see that for Joseph and for you and for me, waiting is not us crossing our arms, sitting down and saying, all right, Lord, uh, when are you going to do what you said you were going to do? In fact, it's, it's, it's a little different for us, the believers. Waiting on the Lord is actually an active process for you and for me. And Joseph is going to show us what activity, what this act, active process looks like for us. But the starting point, I, I believe, for us when it comes to waiting on the Lord we can find in the scriptures. We can find in Joseph's um, conviction that the Lord was with him, the reality the Lord had given him steadfast love and shown him favor. And so he he is acting and reacting out of the reality that God is with him. And so he does not have to fear. Now, he's in a really tough position. He is in a really tough place. He's a slave and he's a prisoner. And we may look at Joseph and say, that is insane. Can you imagine your, your family kicking you out, selling you, you get sold into slavery, then you become a prisoner for doing the right thing? And the question that we would be asking, that I would be asking is, Lord, how much longer? 
I've been doing the right thing all along. You've promised me to, to, to lead me into this great place, and yet I am not seeing you work the way you thought you would work. I don't know where you're at today, but I can tell you this, that we all have suffered and we all will suffer. That is a part of life. There's no shortcut. There's no shortcut through the valley of the shadow of death. And so wherever you find yourself today, maybe it's loss. Maybe it's an addiction you thought you had overcome and all of a sudden it's resurfacing. Maybe it's finances. Maybe it's familial strife. Maybe it's health. Whatever situation you find yourself in, know this, that God is using our suffering ultimately to form us more into the perfect image of Christ. He is using our suffering to deepen our faith and to grow our patience. So there is purpose in suffering. Charles Spurgeon would say this, If the Lord Jehovah makes us wait, let us do so with our whole hearts. For blessed are all they that wait for him. He is worth waiting for. The waiting itself is beneficial to us. Why? It tries faith, exercises patience, trains submission, and endears the blessing when it comes. The Lord's people have always been a waiting people. Now, I don't know about you, but this is like radically against my wiring. You guys, if you know me at all, you know one of my favorite things is efficiency, right? Like one of the favorite things that I enjoy, one of the reasons I try to plan everything out is for efficiency, right? Now, this is the complete opposite of efficient. Lord, a decade to prepare Joseph to lead the Egyptians, I don't, like that seems like very inefficient for him to be in prison and to be a slave, and yet that's what God uses to form Joseph. Why? When he was 17, very immature, acting like a teenager, probably bragging about these dreams to his brothers. And now we're going to fast forward and we're going to find a very different, more mature, developed Joseph. But this is the truth about us, whether we realize it or not, is that God has made us to be awaiting people. Why? Isaiah 40, 29 through 31. This is a scripture you've heard before. I'm just going to read it to us. It says this, 40, 29 through 31. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm in the wrong book. Jeremiah, Isaiah 40. It says this. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even you shall faint, be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord, those who wait for the Lord, shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. This is the reality for you and for me as a believer. It's not that God would remove suffering from us, is that as we suffer, as he is present with us, he is renewing our strength as we wait in him so that we may run when we need to run, so that we may walk when we need to walk. And this is the beautiful promise of God, not the absence of suffering and not the ending of suffering, but the empowerment to make it through the journey of suffering. Why? This is a promise that we've been given, that the Lord is near, that the Lord is faithful. And Jesus said to his disciples, in this world you will have affliction, but take heed, I've overcome the world. There is no escape from suffering, but we do have empowerment to journey through suffering. So we realize from Joseph, the starting point for becoming patient is waiting on the Lord. And that is an active position for the believer. So we move on. And we see Joseph here in chapter 41, uh, sorry, chapter 40. He comes, he's become, like, he, this guy is working hard. You put him as a slave, he's like, I'll be the best slave you've ever seen. And he rises the ranks in Potiphar's house, and he's overseeing Potiphar's house. He acts as a righteous man, runs away from Potiphar's wife, gets sent to prison. Now he's in prison, and he's like, I'm going to be the best, best prisoner you've ever seen. And what do we see? God's favor over his life. He's working faithfully. He's serving faithfully. And he's risen through the ranks in prison. And we, now we see here in verse 7, two guys that are really close to the king, the cupbearer and the baker. These were the men that cared for the king's food. They were making sure that there wasn't any poison. There wasn't anything that would kill the king. And so they were highly important people before the pharaoh. And we don't know what they did. Maybe they, they, they were questioned 
for the food they brought before the Pharaoh, we have no idea. We know it was big enough that they were sent to prison. They're sent to prison. Joseph's put in charge. And we see here in verse 7 of chapter 40, it says, So he asked Pharaoh's officers, this is Joseph looking at the cupbearer and the baker, and he, who were with him in custody in his master's house, and he asked them this question, Why are your faces downcast today? And we may almost be like, uh, bro, I'm in prison. Like, are you serious? Like, you know, like, what in the world? And yet, Joseph, this is what we learn about becoming patient. Second thing about Joseph starts with waiting on the Lord, with having a deep conviction and believing God is who he says he is and will do what he says he's going to do. And the second thing that we see by becoming patient is this, is that it grows through serving while suffering. That it grows through serving while suffering. We see Joseph here has every reason to have a pity party for himself. He's in prison for doing the right thing another time. Yet again, he's, he's been basically cursed or been put uh, in a very bad situation for doing the right thing. And whereas he could be sitting there thinking, I, you know what, I'm just going to keep to myself. We'll see what God does at some point. No, we find Joseph in, instead caring for other prisoners. We find Joseph looking upon other people's faces and saying, hey, what's going on, bro? I see something's wrong in your face. And they say to him this in verse 8, uh, we have had dreams and there is no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God. Please tell them to me. Now, the dangers for us as we look at Joseph and compare our lives to Joseph's life is that when we suffer naturally, we become self-absorbed. We naturally tend to go in where we naturally want to shut the world outside of us out and we simply want to be processing things on our own. And what we see in Joseph's life is not that. We don't see a man that says, man, I am suffering, I'm in prison, I'm just going to wait it out. No, we see a man that in, in his prison, he has a prison ministry. In his suffering, he is ministering to people and that is what God has asked for you and for me, that as we suffer, it's not simply meant to grow us, to make us more patient, but there's something far deeper God wants us to experience in our suffering, and we find it in this. Uh, I'd like for you to go to 2 Corinthians with me. I'm going to take you to the New Testament a couple of times. This is one of them. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul writing about the God of comfort. He says this, verse 3, 2 Corinthians 1, verse 3. He says, blessed be the God and Father. He's worshiping God for this. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in our, all of our afflictions. Why? So that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Verse 5, for as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. You see, your suffering has a greater purpose than just your formation. God, we heard last week, is near to you. God loves you. God is present through your suffering. He is doing a miraculous work. Just when you feel like everything is falling apart, there's actually God piecing together his plan for your life, for his purpose, for his glory. But there's something greater here that Paul says is important for us, is that we don't suffer alone. That we share in Christ's suffering and we're comforted by God, not just simply so that we would be comforted, but that we would get, then get to comfort those around us. You see, we are not meant to suffer alone. In fact, God has given us the body of Christ. He's given your brothers and sisters that are in this room, that are around you, that as you suffer, these are the people that can come alongside you and lift you up as you fall. These are the people that can come alongside you and love you and serve you. And by the way, these are the people that God is calling you to love and serve as well, even as you suffer. Why? Because God's great plan is not simply to be present with you. It's not simply to show you grace and show you mercy and give you um, his presence and, and, and be near. No, it's far greater that as God comforts you, you comfort others. That as God is present and near to you, you would be present and near with others. That as God shows mercy and grace to you, you would show mercy and grace to others. And all of a sudden, we begin to experience the plenitude, the fullness of Christ, not just in our lives, but in our lives as a church and as a body. And this is a beautiful picture of us becoming patient, of us being something even uh, being a part of something even greater than just ourselves and our own suffering, because Joseph knows there's something greater than only his suffering. God is doing something. He says, "Do not interpretations belong to God?" And so I just want to encourage us today that wherever you find yourself in your suffering, in your circumstance, in your situation, 
God has not abandoned you. He is near. But also God is, is going to use that as you allow him to, to be a blessing to other people. I enjoyed reading Chris's email yesterday because just very raw, very open about suffering, about the things he's going through as, as a family this week. And I was encouraged because I think it's easy to sometimes look like he said in the email at pastors and leaders and think, man, these guys, they have an extra blessing, an extra layer of the Lord upon their lives. And yet we don't. We don't. We are, as men of the word, as pastors, are simply learning every day to be more dependent on God. And this is the reality is that dependence on God means we also have to be dependent on one another. As we love God, we love others. Our relationship with God is both vertical and horizontal. So I would just encourage that as we acknowledge our weaknesses, as we acknowledge our sufferings, we highlight God's great power over our lives and over the work he is doing in our lives. So Joseph is a living example of serving through suffering, of not shying away from that. And he continues, verse 12, Then Joseph said to him in response to their dreams, This is its interpretation. The three branches are three days, and three days Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office, and you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer. Only remember me when it is well with you, and please do me the kindness, the word there is hesed, loving kindness, to mention me to Pharaoh. And to get me out of this house, for I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews. And here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. Joseph gives this interpretation. There's a lot of beautiful symbolism and, and um, foreshadowing. Here's three days that he gives this interpreta- interpretation of a dream that there's going to be three days. And in three days there will be death, but there will also be life. There will also be restoration. And the beautiful words that he says, hey, only remember me. Foreshadowing of a thief on the cross that looks over at Jesus and says, only remember me when you go to your kingdom. And Jesus says, surely you will be with me. Now, we can't unpack all the symbolism here, but what we can do is learn from Joseph. Ultimately, what he is doing here is pointing to God. He says, these interpretations are of the Lord, and the Lord has a very specific interpretation, and there's a reason for this that we'll later find out. And he continues in verse 20, um, the story continues in verse 20. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all the servants and lifted up the heads of the chief cupbearer and the head on the chief baker among his servants. And just as Joseph interpreted, he restored the chief cupbearer to his position and he placed the cupbearer in Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. And Joseph does the right thing, interprets the dream, and says, Hey, don't forget me. And what happens? Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph but forgot him. What do we do when we do all the right things and things don't work out? Maybe you've been in this position in life where you say, but I'm really trying to do the right thing and I don't see anything change. I've really made an effort. I've been praying. I've been reading the Bible. I've been sharing the gospel. I've been giving. I've been serving. I've been doing all the right things, but my circumstance is not changing. Where are you at, Lord? What are you doing? Why can't I see you working? May I say to you, the Lord is actually working in your life. May I remind us that the Lord, even through that, when he is not immediately responding, when it feels like he is slow, he is forming in us a deeper faith, deeper roots, so that we may live unto his glory. Because there will come a moment, and we're about to see this, there will come a moment where God will act. And when God acts, it's quick and it's swift and it's been building up over this time. But we must be men and women who can wait on the Lord and as we wait, be willing to serve while we suffer. Why? What if how we suffer reveals to others the faith that we have? What if how we suffer not just reveals to others the kind of faith we have, but actually reveals to ourselves the kind of faith we have? That if we actually paid attention to the way we suffer, we'd be able to see, do I really believe that God is faithful? Do I really believe that God is good? Do I really believe that God is present? I had a friend call me this week to ask me for some advice. His sister-in-law um, is at the hospital this week with her second husband. Her first husband passed away from a sickness. Her oldest son was taken away from her from a tragic car accident. And now her husband, her second husband that she remarried, is in the hospital, taken to the hospital Tuesday. The diagnosis is stomach cancer. And they tell him, there's nothing we can do. We can try to give you a few extra months, but there's nothing we can do to fight this. And her question to him is, why does God hate me? 
Why does God hate me? He could just end my life and take me, and that would be the end of that. But instead, he's taken away my first husband. He's taken away my son. Now I'm here fighting cancer with my husband. Why does God hate me? She's not a believer. She doesn't know what is happening in her life. And he calls me not knowing how to share with her the good news of the gospel, how to love on her, how to, how to ultimately engage her. And I just said, in God's providence, we're in this text this week. And I told him, man, it's, it's interesting, the, this concept of suffering, because we're looking at Joseph this week as a church. And one of the things that I see in Joseph is his ministry of presence. His ministry of asking questions and just being near to those that are suffering for the opportunity to share that God is near, that God does love you, that God does care. Now, I said, you're not going to convince her. That's not your job or responsibility. You can't tell her, no, God doesn't hate you and, and expect her to believe that. That's the Spirit's work in her life. But what you can do is tell of God's great and faithful work in your life. The times you've seen him show up, the times you've seen him heal, the times you've seen him not heal, and yet you still know him to be good. These are the things that we can tell the world around us that is suffering, that we believe in a good God that doesn't act the way we always expect him to, and yet he is always good, always present, always near, always full of mercy and grace, and we get to share those good news with those around us. God reveals himself to others and even to ourselves by how we suffer. The next thing we find from Joseph as we continue in this text is that becoming patient is anchored in God's revelation. Becoming patient is anchored in God's revelation. We continue in chapter 41. After two whole years, the author has been very intentional by using the words about time throughout this text. After two whole years, I want you to imagine this. Joseph interpreted this dream and he thought, this is my get out of jail card. Hey, don't, don't forget me when, when you get restored and then he's forgotten. Two whole years passed. Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. And behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows attractive and plump. I don't know about you, but I have never looked at a cow and thought, that's an attractive and plump cow. <laughs> it's not the way I describe cows. All right? Also, for us to have a little extra plump, maybe we're attractive, says the Bible. Anyways, verse 3. <laughs> Let's get out. Finally got an amen. Verse 3. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, don't be thin, I'm kidding, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows of the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive plump cows. And the Pharaoh awoke, and he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on the stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump, full ears, and Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning, his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dream, but there was no one who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Now, for the Egyptians, dreams at that time, they, were, they believed this is how the gods communicated to them. So they had uh, these magicians and these wise men that would interpret the dreams that they thought the gods would give to them. And here is Pharaoh reaches out to his magicians and to his wise men, and he can find no one to interpret his dream. Something very intentional is happening here. God is doing something very intentional in this story. And so what does he do? He's, he reaches out. Nobody can interpret his dream. And two years later, the cupbearer, verse 9, said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today when Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard. We dreamed on the same night, he and I each having a dream with its own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams for us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office in the baker's hand. All of a sudden, the specificity of Joseph's interpretation is important. If Joseph's dream had not been specific and his, uh, the interpretation had not been specific the way it was, this cupbearer, cupbearer probably would not have remembered Joseph. He probably would have thought, I mean, this was very insignificant when Joseph said, and yet because Joseph was very specific through God's interpretation, he's able to now see God use that, even though it's been two years later, ultimately for Joseph's good. And so what does Pharaoh do? Verse 14, Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and check this out, the, the shift in timing. And they quickly brought him out of the pit. 
And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came before the Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard there is, I have heard it said that you, that when you hear a dream, you can interpret. And look at Joseph's answer. Joseph said, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. If you look at your footnote, it says, without God, it is not possible to give Pharaoh an answer about his welfare. So what we discover from Joseph's life, from Joseph's posture is this, is that to grow in patience, to become patient, to have this be a fruit in our lives, it has to be anchored in God's revelation. To this point, we find Joseph continually pointing back to God and saying, interpretations are the Lord's. I No, this is not in me. This is the Lord that will reveal to you, Pharaoh, what he is doing. And so Pharaoh listens to him, and Pharaoh tells him his dream, And we find Joseph then in verse 25. Joseph said to Pharaoh, The dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. Then the seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. And we'll skip down to 28. It is as I told Pharaoh. God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. Now, it's amazing to me that God has given these dreams to pagans, to people who who, who do not have their faith upon the Lord. And he is giving the interpretation to Joseph, but he's giving these dreams. He's communicating to the unbeliever. And even recently, I've, we've probably heard these stories of God revealing himself to the Muslim community through dreams. They've had dreams and seen visions of Jesus and seen stories of Jesus in their dreams. And that's how they've come to faith. And I recently heard uh, two weeks ago about a man that came to faith uh, from a village in Pakistan. He had a dream, came to faith, and now he has been training up here in Houston to go back to his community in Pakistan to go and share the good news of the gospel. You see, God is using all kinds of means to reach the lost. And here, God is giving dreams to the unbeliever because he is revealing something greater about himself. And Joseph is quick to point out, not that he has the ability to, point, to, to interpret dreams, not that we have these great talents and abilities to show what God can do, but ultimately just simply to point back to God. So Joseph reveals that the only source of wisdom is actually God. And there's a difference for us here that we need to distinguish, the difference between knowledge and information and wisdom. You and I can read the Bible all day long. We can memorize scripture all day long. And yes, that's a good and healthy discipline. But we're going to find these words now here from Joseph that are really important, that are repeated between Joseph and Pharaoh. And that is this, of discernment and wisdom. Discernment and wisdom. And I hope and I pray that as we read this text, we begin to ask the Lord, Lord, will we be people that are discerning and wise? Not just full of information, but Truly discerning and wise. Let's continue. Verse 29. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land, but after them will rise seven years of famine in all of Egypt, um, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. Famine will consume the land, and the plenty will be unknown in the land. By reason of the famine will, that will follow for it will be very severe. And this is Joseph again pointing to God. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring about will bring it about. Now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Joseph doesn't say, hey, by the way, discerning and wise man right here, also very humble man. He can put me in that position. No, he says, hey, uh, you need to put a wise and discerning man in this position. This is Joseph not just now interpreting the dream, but now all of a sudden Joseph is doing something that's a little bit different a little bit deeper, a little bit greater than simply serving while suffering. Now he is looking for the welfare of the Egyptians, the whole, the whole people. He is looking for their welfare, and he's telling uh, Pharaoh, hey, you need to appoint a discerning and wise man because if you're going to weather this famine, it has to be someone that can lead in a way that God is going to lead, uh, wants us to lead. And he's not saying that's me. He's simply saying the Lord wants this for your, for your people. So as I looked at this and I thought about serving, serving while suffering, and things and themes that we have here at The Grove, one of the things that, that, one of the texts that we often go to is seek the welfare of the place you are in, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. So what if we were people that, yes, we suffer, and it's hard, and it's difficult, but we are surrounded by a community that's helping to lift us up. And what if as a community, we're also now looking for the welfare of those around us? What if as suffering people, we step out 
And we love on our suffering neighbors. We love on our suffering neighborhood. We love on our suffering coworkers. We love on our suffering family. And ultimately, we do that and point to God. Wouldn't that be a beautiful representation of the gospel to the people around us? That even as we suffer, we find God's nearness in our lives. And as we find his nearness in our life, we can go and share that with others. Now, you may be looking at this text and thinking, yeah, bro, but this is Joseph. He's like... He's kind of a big deal in the Old Testament. Like, he's done a lot of good things. He is faithful. Like, I don't know that I can do that. May I say to you, you can and you will. And how do I know this? Because the scripture is about to show us something that relates us to Joseph. And we find it in verse 37. Joseph gives him this proposal on how to uh, care for the people. And, and it says, the proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. Basically, they were like, hey, man, awesome TED Talk, awesome keynote, like, We're about that. And this is Pharaoh's response to Joseph. He says to his servants, Can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? This is the first time we find this in Scripture, that there is someone that is filled with the Spirit of God. Now, you may look at Joseph and think, man, he's the exception. That guy was faithful. He was steadfast. I don't think I can do that. Do that. And yet I would say you can And you will, and I can, and I will, as we submit to the Lord. Why? Because the spirit that was in Joseph is the same spirit that's in you and me. The spirit that's in Joseph and empowered him through his suffering for the journey that he had ahead of him is the same spirit that is working in you and me. And so I have to ask us, what testimony are we giving about the spirit that is inside of us? When people say, can you find a man or a woman like, and insert your name, it's what follows for this man or this woman is full of the Spirit of God. Is that what people see in us? Is that what the, our, the testimony we give to the, our neighbors and our networks and our nations, is that what people see in us? Now, I know oftentimes it's not. Oftentimes it's, can we find a man that's more bitter or a woman that's more angry or a husband that's more, and, and we can fill in the blanks because that's our fallen nature. It's our flesh. But when we come to the Lord in repentance, when we come before him and we don't quench the spirit and we're not fighting with the spirit, but instead we're submitting to the spirit, the Lord begins to awaken a deep work of his, his deep work in our lives so that we will live out the way he wants us to live out this faith. Now, I want you to go with me one more time to the New Testament to John 14. John 14. Start verse for verse 15. This is Jesus promising the Holy Spirit to his disciples. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Maybe we don't love God that much, right, when we look at our obedience. And yet he says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And then he says this, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. And last week we had this promise that God is near and he is present. And Jesus now is promising not just that he is near and is present, but now that the Spirit is coming, he will not just be with you, he will also be in you. And that's the reason that we can see the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. And the fruit of the Spirit is this, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. As you look at your life, as I look at my life, do we see the fruit of the Spirit? As we are indwelt, spirit-filled, empowered people, one of the words that we find there is patience, right? It's patience. This would be a natural fruit as we continually submit to God. And so I would simply say and remind us from Joseph's example, from Joseph's story, is that becoming patient is actually a present reality for you and me because we are spirit-filled servants. Because that's true, because this is our identity, this is not an optional thing. This is not a, man, I, I don't think I'll ever be a patient person. No, this is actually God working that fruit of the Spirit in you and in me, that we would be men and women who are full of love, full of joy, full of peace, full of patience, full of kindness, full of goodness, full of faithfulness, full of gentleness, and full of self-control. Man, what a beautiful picture for us as a church to pursue these things that while we suffer, God is forming these things in us. And so we see Joseph in this 
text exemplify this. And then what does Pharaoh say in verse um, 39? He says, Pharaoh says to Joseph, since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. Joseph's been pointing to God, pointing to God, pointing to God, to the point that an unbeliever, Pharaoh, can look at Joseph and say, oh, okay, the Lord has revealed this to you. And so what does he do? He says, then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and then did what? Put a gold chain about his neck. Um, He goes on to say, and there's a lot of foreshadowing here, very beautiful foreshadowing to the greater Joseph. He clothes him in these royal robes. He says, every knee will bow before you. He's in these chariots, the second chariot. And there's all this foreshadowing to the greater Joseph in Jesus. But Joseph ultimately gets finally put in a place where now that he's matured and he's grown over time, now he will actually be overseeing all of the land. This is what uh, Pharaoh says to him. And in this connection between Adam, who was put to a rule over all the land, and he did not do that. Well, now we have Joseph here ruling over all the land and pointing to Jesus who will one day make all this right. And so Joseph is 30 now, takes over, and we see Joseph's reality now from the dream he had when he was 17. God was faithful, faithful to Joseph to bring about that dream, even over a decade later of him suffering and him waiting and him preparing by serving others. And so we'll land here in these last few verses. Verse 51. So Joseph called the son of his, uh, the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made for me, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. And then the name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come as Joseph had said. There was famine in all lands, but in all, um, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph, what he says to you, do. Uh, foreshadowing little echoes of when Mary at the wedding says, go to Jesus, whatever he says, do. 56, so when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain because the famine was severe over all the earth. Over a decade of suffering, over a decade of faithfulness from Joseph, of serving, of loving, of being patient, of waiting on the Lord, and now God is using one man to ultimately preserve mankind. Like, I just, I never realized all of the earth was experiencing this famine, and because of Joseph's faithful posture before the Lord, now God is working, ultimately, to bring about his restorative work in all the world. And so my final point is this. For us to become patient, there's only one place we can find patience. There's only one place we can find a deeper faith, and it is from God's storehouse. See, Joseph prepared for this famine. Joseph was working diligently to prepare for this famine. And even when the famine came, I mean, it says he had saved up so much grain, even more than the sand, uh, the grains of the sand. They couldn't count it. He was so faithful that when the time came for him to serve, he was ready. He was ready to go. So I have to ask us today, what storehouses are we running to? What storehouses do we run to when there is famine, when there is suffering, when there is difficulty? What do we run to? This is the reason we've been preaching in Genesis for the past, uh, for this past year. It's so that we can glean from the truths of Scripture, so that we can get to know a God that is faithful, that is present, that is working, that even when things seem like they're falling apart, He is working His plan for salvation for His people. He is always there and always working. And when we read these truths of the Word, these truths of Scripture, we can make that our storehouse. We can run to the Word. We can run to God's Word and be reminded God is good. God is faithful. We can endure. We can suffer well. We can serve while suffering. We can become patient. We can become men and women who are full of the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. Why? Because we run to God's storehouse. That's the place we find that. So I just want to end with this. Joseph says, God has made me forget. And it's ironic because he names his son, God has made me forget. And anytime he says his name, he's going to be remembering, right? It almost seems ironic, like, what? You're going to remember all the time when you say his name. And yet, 
What we see here is not that God, he's forgotten what God has done. In fact, it's the opposite. It's that when we're in our affliction, when we have these moments of hopelessness, of helplessness, and we feel like there's no exit at all, God intervenes. God is present. God shows up and does the work. And then as we look back, we don't remember the hopelessness and helplessness. In fact, what we remember is God's faithful work in our lives. And then he ends with this, God has made me fruitful in the land of our affliction. I pray that you and I would be men and women who are fruitful, that we are fruitful by the Spirit in this land. Because by the way, this is the land of our affliction. The suburbs of Houston, Richmond, Sugarland, wherever we're at, this is not the promised land. There's a greater land that's awaiting us. This is not the promised land. This is the land of our affliction. And in this affliction, will we wait on God? I want to end with these, with this um, lyrics from a song called Storehouse by the Great Havens. If you've not heard it, I recommend you listen to it this week. But these are the lyrics. They say, you're caught, you're caught standing still. Think you'll be fine. The colors fade. You drift away. And you're back to what you know, what's easy, what you like. You don't look back. Refuse to turn like, I'll build my own makeshift home. But it only ever serves to make it worse. I'm over my head and lost. And the ground feels unstable and I can't make this stop. But this I call, this I call to mind. How the father runs to the wayward son coming back alive. So I'll go to the storehouse I'll go. To the storehouse of mercy I'll go. I pray that you and I would be men and women that would run to the storehouse of mercy that God's prepared for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful for Joseph and his faithfulness, Lord, because we see our brother stay steadfast amidst slavery, amidst imprisonment, amidst being um, sold, amidst being chastised, and just being put aside, Lord, for doing the right things. See a man that is faithfully waiting on you a man who is rooted in his faith in you and knows who you are, knows your steadfast love and knows your favor and knows that that is enough to endure whatever may come. I pray, Father God, that we, as we suffer, would look to Joseph's example as one that we would want exemplified in our lives, that as we suffer, we would hold fast to the reality that you are good, that you are present, that your steadfast love is all over us. It's never abandoned us, that your favor is upon us. And so we can run to the storehouse of mercy to know that we're not abandoned. And as we do, Father God, you're growing in us a deeper faith, a greater patience, so that we may trust in you, serve you, and serve others even while we suffer because you are doing a greater redemptive work in our lives and in the lives of those around us. Let us not be people that shrink. Let us not be people that become self-absorbed as we suffer, but instead, Lord, as we need help, let us reach out. That's what you created the body for. And let us see your great provision through your people to restore our situations that are deeply broken. Ultimately, Father God, to bring you glory and to share the good news with those around us. We're grateful for this time. We're grateful for Joseph and his story. And we're waiting, Father God, just for you to continue to do your faithful work in our lives. It's in your name that we pray today. Amen.